0: Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. You guys about done with this snow? Yeah. Oh, so am I. I am so eager to get outside and uh work on the, my base tan and you know just kind of bronze up. I am looking forward to being outside. Um you know this last summer we had, we were we had already spent the spring kind of in quarantine in our houses so in the summer I was ready to like eat outside. I have a picnic table in my front yard. My pic- my yard is just big enough for a picnic table and a grill. So I was really looking forward to all summer long grilling dinner and eating on the picnic table and just if I, if I don't want to be in my house all summer so at least I can be in my yard. I can't go to a restaurant or anything. So this last summer that was my plan, and it just failed miserably, and I'll tell you why. Every time I tried to eat outside and you know, grill dinner and eat on the picnic table, we were assaulted by flies. Remember when there was no one picking up trash for three weeks? Do you remember that? Add that to the list of things we've experienced this year. Well, on my street, The trash sat out for like three weeks because no one picked it up. And then in addition to that, we have a neighbor who has a dog who isn't always as diligent as they could be about picking up the dog dirt, as we call it, where I'm from. And so between the neighbor's yard and the trash sitting out, every time I tried to eat out, it was more like swatting flies away than eating. And it was never enjoyable to the point where we just stopped doing it. We would just go back inside and eat. We'd go to all the work of bringing everything out and then we'd sit down and there'd be these flies. And I don't know if you've ever, you, I know you guys have done this at a picnic or outdoors. You're trying to eat, but there's flies everywhere. So you got your food in one hand and the other hand is doing this, right? Right. So, and then of course, I don't, I don't know about you. I'm, I start to get angry. I'm like, what are we even doing out here? So I start, my voice is raised, getting raised. My face is turning red. I'm standing up. I'm swinging my arms around. Now, Imagine what I look like to the neighbor across the street. It's just that, oh, there's that pastor. He's just doing this everywhere, right? Looks insane. Now, because they don't see the flies, they see me acting like a crazy person, right? Now, they probably know what I'm doing because they've been in that situation. But there's something that they can't see that's causing me to act out of sorts, right there's something that they can't see that's causing me to flail my arms there's something that they can't see that's causing my blood pressure to get up there's something that they can't see that's making me angry and making me frustrated there's something that they can't see that's causing me to behave that way that is an illustration of spiritual warfare and that is an illustration of what happens when evil or unclean spirits that we call demons have an impact on a person's life. There's something that we can't see that's making people behave that way. You know, in the Bible, one of the titles for Satan is Beelzebul. You'll read that in the Gospels. Beelzebul actually means Lord of the Flies. And Satan is associated with flies and stench and garbage and disease. All of those things attract flies. And so Satan is called in the Gospels, the Lord of the flies. So I want you to think, and this is not like a perfect 100% illustration, but this is helpful and it is biblical. I want you to think of demonic spirits like flies, now, I think a lot of us think of them as much bigger and much scarier than flies, but this is a biblical picture here. We want to think of them like flies. They buzz in our ear, they infect, they bring disease and, and, and sickness, And but they're also small. You ever killed a fly? It's gross, but you can do it, right? And so... All of you have taken steps in your homes. You make sure that your windows are closed, your doors are closed, to keep flies out, right? When you get a fly in, you try to deal with it. You don't want to live in a house that's full of flies, right? There are steps that we take in our lives to make sure that there are not evil spirits getting in. And if one gets in, we do have the ability to get it out. Jesus provides that to us. Throughout the Gospels, Demons are referred to as unclean spirits, just furthering that idea of like G- Satan being lord of the flies. Demons are referred to as unclean spirits. One of the ways that evil spirits or demons function is they are attracted to sin the way flies are attracted to garbage. You know, I could stand out in my yard and swat flies all day, but if we don't pick up the dog dirt and we don't take out the trash, what's going to happen? They're going to come back. But if we cleaned up the yard, this is not my yard, by the way, but if the yard was cleaned up and the trash was taken, what would happen to the flies? They'd go away on their own. And that's the way that they are attracted to sin in our lives or in a community. Pastor John Eric referenced this a few weeks ago in a sermon, but uh, evil spirits are attracted to sin and trauma and pain. So when there is sin and trauma and pain, that's what they want to go at. Whether that happens in your own personal life or whether that happens in a community. About six or seven years ago, well, we've had several occasions actually where we've had to deal with certain things out in the community, but six or seven years ago at the Takoni Library, uh, the Ku Klux Klan had had a rally on the steps of the library. And this was shocking. That in Philadelphia, a city that is majority African-American, that there even was an active KKK presence. Uh, but that, they had a rally on the steps of the Taconi Library, and that was shocking to the community. And a lot of the community around that library is African-American. And so that was right outside their window. Right after that, about just a few days after that, in response to the KKK rally was an Antifa rally. Antifa had a little demonstration on the steps of the Tacony Library. A few days after that, a child was getting out of his car to go into the library when he was hit in the head with a stray bullet. He survived, but he was rushed to the hospital, and he was in serious condition, and he recovered. All of that happened within 10 days. You had a Klan rally, in Antifa demonstration and a child shot in the head and I knew that this was spiritual there was something going on here there was some pain trauma sin and now it was becoming a a a a magnet for demonic activity so as a church we gathered about 25 of us I think it was maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday night, where we went to the Tacony Library and we had our own thing. We figured, well, might as well. Everyone else is. We went onto the steps of the Tacony Library and we took communion. We distributed communion to everyone that was present. Now, before we did this, because we want to be loving to our neighbors and not scare them, we went around to all of the houses and apartments immediately adjacent to the library and we said, we are from a church. We're going to be praying and taking communion. Because I didn't want them to think this was another thing. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I might regret saying this, but, like, all the people that showed up first were white people. And so a bunch of white people meeting on the steps of the Taconi Library kind of looks like that thing that just happened 10 days ago, right? So um, I wanted to make sure that they understood, like, this is, this is a church. We are going to be praying, and you're welcome to join us if you would like. And some of them did. So we took communion on the steps. Then we gathered in a circle, and we held hands, and we started to pray. And out of the library comes a, a woman. In a, she's you know, well-dressed. She comes out. She's the director of the library, and she wants to know, what are you guys doing? Of course, she's on edge, because all this stuff has been happening right outside their doors. She wants to know what we're doing. So we explained to her, well, we're just, we know the, well, everything that's been going on. We're from the community, we're a church from down the street. And we would like to, we just are praying for you and for the library. And she jumped right in, grabbed our hands, and prayed with us. Now, that was a shift that I felt like our church needed to participate in because there was sin pain and trauma at that location that was now it was escalating we had to step in when we took communion we pled the blood of Jesus over the place and we prayed and we bound and we loosed and that was the end there was no issues after that there were no issues after that not only, and, I, and, and I'm not sure what the correlation between these two things were, but it was very shortly after that, that library was approved for like several million dollars of upgrades and it's one of the six nicest libraries in Philadelphia now. They went from all this turmoil and pain and drama on their property to now they're like they're one of the premier libraries in Philadelphia. Now, I'm sure there was way more happening there. God had already set some stuff in motion, but I'm glad to say that we participated in shifting what was happening in that place. Now, take that down to like the life of an individual, not just something that's in a community, but the life of an individual. If you've ever been, gone through a time where you're like, man, it just seems like everything's going wrong. I, you know, my relationship is damaged. I lost my job. My money's messed up. All this, my health is suffering. It's like I can't, nothing, nothing's going right. Everything is going wrong. I don't want to be dogmatic about this. It's not 100% of the time, but sometimes that is spiritual warfare. Sometimes there's actually a plan against you that has been orchestrated by either Satan or unclean spirits or as we would call them, demons. But there is good news because Jesus goes around defeating demons regularly in the New Testament and Jesus still defeats demons today. He still has power over unclean or evil spirits today. We're gonna look at a story in Mark chapter nine where Jesus deals with a rather extreme... um, issue of demonization and we're going to look at that in a moment but before we do I want to define two words that I'm going to use a lot today that are uh it's just helpful vocabulary for us to understand this concept so first I want to use the word demonized rather than the phrase demon possessed you might find in your some of your English translations it might actually say demon possessed but that is not a I think that that translation it's accurate, but it kind of gives the wrong picture that the demon owns the person, that the person is the possession of the demon. The, the Greek word is "daimonizomai," and it just means demonized or influenced by a demon, not owned by a demon. Not the demon has all authority over you, but the demon is influencing or impacting you. So I'm gonna I've moved "demon possessed." That term is hardly in my vocabulary now when i talk about this topic i'm almost always using the phrase demonize we're dealing with a demonized person in this story secondly i'm going to use the phrase deliverance deliverance is the process by which you get a person free from demonization if you grew up in the you know 60s 70s and 80s and you're familiar with the movie the exorcist that movie has done more to damage people's theology than probably anything else uh and people hear the phrase exorcism, and that's a, immediately what they think of is they think of the Exorcist, and uh, I think Linda Blair was the actress, and her head spins backwards, and she spits the green split pea soup-looking stuff out. It's just a don't you don't need to watch that movie, okay? Read the Bible, uh, so <laughs> uh, or watch the Eagles because that was like an exorcism this year. <sighs> so. <laughs> So I'm going to use the word deliverance. Now, the Greek word is exercomi, and it actually, it, it is the word we get exorcism from. So exorcism is an accurate word, but it's just, it's been screwed up. So I've been using the word deliverance. Get, we're getting a person free from an evil spirit. So demonization or demonized is how I'm going to describe a person who is under the influence of an evil spirit. Deliverance is how I'm going to describe the process that they go through to get free from that. Does that make sense? And I've been using those words for years. Hopefully, you've picked up on that. But for those that are unfamiliar, those are the terms we're going to use. Now, this story in Mark 9 does have a little bit of context. Before we get to the story that starts in verse 15 and we, get, we see the story where Jesus is up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John praying. We're gonna look at that story in a couple of weeks, so I'm not gonna do all of it today or let the cat out of the bag, but Jesus is up on a mountain praying with three disciples. So if he's, if he's praying with three disciples, how many disciples are left at the bottom of the mountain? Nine, excellent math. Okay, great job. So there's nine disciples that are not with Jesus. They're just down at the bottom of the mountain with a crowd of people. And while they're down there, a man comes with his son and asks those nine disciples, my son is demonized and I need your help. Now, if you just flip backwards through the book of Mark, you'll see Jesus has already been casting demons out of people. The disciples have already been casting demons out of people. That's why this man is coming to them because, well, you guys have a reputation for this. You've been doing this. You've had success with this. So this man comes to the nine disciples and says, I need you to get this demon out of my son, and they can't. They try. They've done it before, but for some reason, they can't. They cannot get this little boy, well, not a little boy. It's it's probably actually a young man. They cannot get this son free. That's where we pick up with the story in verse 15. Jesus and Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain, Verse 15 of Mark 9 says immediately when the entire crowd saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, well, what are you discussing with them? Actually, what are you arguing about? One of the crowd answered Jesus, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered, Jesus answered and said to them, "O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me." They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately, the, when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? The father said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into the terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So that's the story. This story can be summarized in five phrases that we find in the passage, and those seven phrases, did I say five phrases? It's seven phrases. This story can be summarized in seven phrases that are found in the passage, and those phrases are, I brought you my son, he has a spirit. So that's the problem. They could not do it. If you can He rebuked the unclean spirit. Why is it that we could not cast it out? This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. We're gonna look at those seven phrases to guide our study of this story. The first is, I brought you my son. This is in verse 17. Last week, we actually looked at another father who brought his sick daughter to Jesus, although he didn't actually bring the daughter, but he went to Jesus on behalf of his daughter. His name was Jairus. So now we we actually have a couple stories here where it's the parents going on behalf of either their sick or demonized children. There is a good principle for us to learn here that sometimes the person who's afflicted can't go to Jesus on their own, so someone has to bring them. Or go to Jesus on their behalf. In this case, uh, today and last week, it's a father. It's a parent. The parent is going to Jesus on behalf of the children. Those of you parents that are in the room, you should be going to Jesus on behalf of your kids. And when you can, bring them with you. And when they get older, they'll go to Jesus on their own. But at these young, when they're at a young age, you want to be going to Jesus on their behalf. Now. As I read verse 21, it seems evident to me that this is probably not a little boy. It's probably like a young man. Um, The word for son here is not the word for a little son, but it's like my grown son, the father says that he's been like this since childhood, which kind of implies that it's, it's been a while, that childhood is in the rearview mirror now. So we don't know exactly how old this demonized uh, son is, but he, he's probably not a little tiny kid. He's probably 12 to 18-ish in that tr- kind of age, age, age range. This father's desperate. I mean, who, who knows how long he's traveled from, but he gets to these nine disciples. He's brought his son with him. I mean, we, we'll go into this later, but look at the suffering that this, this son has been through. He's getting thrown on the ground. He's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth. It says that he's been thrown into the fire and water on multiple occasions, essentially trying to harm himself or kill himself. There's a lot of suffering going on in this son's life, and there's a lot of suffering going on in the father's life. I mean, just imagine if your kids went through that. Think of the desperation that you would feel. You, and I, I said this last week, so I won't beat a dead horse, but when your kids are suffering, you feel helpless. And helplessness is actually not a bad place to be because that is the doorway in to desperation and faith. Now, don't stay in helplessness. If you just decide to be permanently helpless, that's not good. But if your helplessness drives you to prayer, it's, it's a doorway. It's the way in. When you feel helpless, just say, I feel helpless. Don't deny it, but also don't take it as a permanent state. But recognize it for what it is. It's a transition point. For this father, it's a transition point. He brings his son, his demonized son to the disciples And he tells them exactly what the problem is. It says he has a spirit. He does not come asking for for medical intervention. He doesn't necessarily even talk about like physical healing. He says from the beginning in verse 17, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. The father has a pretty good handle on what's going on here. And in their worldview, we'll talk about this as well, in their worldview, evil spirits were often the cause of behaviors like this. Now, they also believed in sickness, but they didn't have the understanding that we have of it, with bacteria and germs and viruses and stuff like that. But they did have a, a concept of like cleanliness and how you know, not being cleanly can lead to illness. And not, not all illness is spiritual, but some illness is spiritual. And so this father has a pretty good diagnosis here. He has a spirit which makes him mute. And then he goes through some of the expressions of that in a moment. But he knows it's a spiritual issue. It is not simply medical or psychological. Now, there are symptoms in this passage. I use the, fr- the term manifestations. Okay, When I talk about what a demon makes a person do, the phrase I use is manifestation. This, this was the manifestation. But that, it's just the word symptom. Because all a symptom is is an expression of an illness, right? You know, if you have a runny nose, the runny nose is not really the issue. The runny nose is a symptom or a manifestation of a cold or a flu or something else like that, right? And now I don't know, even know if you have a runny nose. I can't tell. So the manifestations are the symptoms, in this case, they include the inability to speak. He's mute. He falls to the ground. It seems like violently, like he is thrown to the ground, not he just collapses or falls over. Foaming at the mouth, the grinding of teeth, stiffness. He goes into convulsions, and at times he throws himself either into fire or water to harm himself. Now, Some of these sound a little bit like an epileptic seizure, and some of these are not consistent with an epileptic seizure. Throwing yourself into water and fire to drown yourself or burn yourself, that's not something that comes along with epileptic seizures. There's something going on here that's trying to harm this boy. So the father is convinced that it's Primarily spiritual, which does not preclude or eliminate the possibility that there's also medical and psychological issues going on. I want to talk a little bit about the worldview of the New Testament and our worldview now. So, since about the 1500s, the Enlightenment, and then the, the scientific uh, Enlightenment and Revolution we have drifted away from spiritual explanations to spiritual problems and moved toward purely scientific medical physical explanations to everything there is some good there's a lot of good in understanding what's going on in the physical natural world i mean i'm really glad that we have microscopes i'm really glad that i can take a Tylenol and a headache goes away I'm really glad that my doctor prescribed me medication that helps with my thyroid like I'm very happy for that and I don't think there's a problem with taking medicine but I also know that there are limitations to that that there is more to the universe according to the bible if I have a biblical worldview there's more to the universe than just the physical world there's also a spiritual world And that the spiritual world and the physical world are integrated, not excluded from one another. This is one of the biggest issues we have with our worldview today, as we dichotomize or separate the physical from the the natural, sorry, the physical from the spiritual, as if they never touch each other. Guys, they touch each other all the time. In fact, they're permanently interwoven with each other. It's the same way that your emotions are interwoven with your body. You know, have you ever gotten angry and all of a sudden your blood pressure goes up? Have you ever been sad and all of a sudden you're weeping water from your face? That just shows you that your emotions, which are not physical, are integrated with your body, which is physical. Well, add to that the spiritual. The spiritual is integrated into the natural. They're not separate. They're integrated, they're connected. And so we don't have to throw out Medicine to believe in spiritual warfare. We don't have to throw out spiritual warfare to believe in medicine. This helps us diagnose what's really going on in a situation like this. Does that make sense? So it's, it comes down to root causes, not symptoms. If you just evaluate symptoms, you're not really going to get to the cause of the issue. In this case, though not in every case, but in the case we're studying today, it is a spiritual issue. Okay? Jesus didn't cast demons out of every sick person. Some of them he just healed, right? But in this case, it happens to be a demonic issue. So there is a gap between the New Testament worldview and our worldview. We want to integrate them, not pit them at odds with one another. So, one other point, just kind of a pastoral note here. Notice that this demon that is influencing this boy says in verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 22, it's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. There's something about this demon that wants this boy to harm himself. It's a self-inflicted harm. So my experience, 16 years of doing this, of being a pastor and help, helping some people in these situations, almost anything that is self-harm has some sort of demonic element to it. So cutting, starving yourself, ultimately suicide, that is almost always demonic. I mean, I'm at the point where I just start with it's demonic until you can convince me it's not. And here's why I say that. You have been hardwired to survive at all costs. You have a survival instinct in you. That causes you to fight or flight Fight or flee No matter what You are hardwired to survive Anything that short circuits that And makes you intentionally seek death Goes against everything about your physiology It goes against everything about who we are as human beings The desire to die And to take matters into our own hands Uh, Suicide is not an instinct It's a voice. It's something you hear. No one ever had a suicide instinct. No one ever had a I'm going to cut myself instinct. That goes against your instincts. It's a voice. It's a temptation. It's ultimately something that comes from Satan or from a demon to try to harm you and put you in a bad place. I look at this story and I see that. I see this self-harm, self-inflicted harm. And so You know, again, I don't want to be like really strict and say 100% of the time, but my default is if someone's harming themselves, I start with this is a demonic issue until I'm convinced it's not. I don't do that with every other issue, but with this one, I do. Now, the father identifies this as a spiritual problem and then. To make matters worse, in verse 18, the disciples are not able to do it. It says they could not do it. They can't get this boy free. This was frustrating and potentially even embarrassing because, well, they've helped other people. I don't know what's going on here, Jesus. I mean, we've cast demons out of other people. We did a really good job. When we came back, you encouraged us. You actually sent us out to do this. You gave us authority over all the unclean spirits. But for some reason, this is not working. They were unable to set the boy free. Even though they'd had success with that in the past, it was confusing, and we'll see that they actually asked Jesus for an explanation later. Potentially, it was embarrassing. So the father's attention turns away from these stinking nine disciples that can't help to, all right, Jesus, you're the boss. If you can do anything, that's his question. Very, this is very different than the other people Remember the woman who had the issue of blood? She's like, I just know I got to touch. If I just touch him, I'll be healed. There's this centurion that's like, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say it and my servant will be healed. This guy is like, if you can do anything. (laughs) And and again, I always read Jesus, you know, kind of like with my voice. Jesus is like, if you can. Anything is possible for him who has faith or him who believes. So, This, if you can, it's interesting. It's a statement of belief, but it's also mixed with unbelief. He has some hope. I mean, he's there, right? He did come to Jesus. So he has some belief that this is possible, but he's not totally sure. Verse 19, Jesus is already upset with the disciples. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? I love that Jesus said, how long shall I put up with you? That makes me feel like a better parent. Just quoting Jesus. <laughs> so f- there's already an issue, and actually if you read the story in the Gospel of Matthew, verse, se- chapter 17, he says part of the problem is your little faith, the littleness of your faith. In verse, uh, verses 20 through, 22 through 24, uh, the man says, if you can... Do any, if you can do anything, take pity and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then the father says this, I do believe, help my unbelief. Unbelief is part of the problem of what's going on here. And Jesus confronts it in the disciples and he confronts it in the father. The father, and I think the disciples, set an example for us. The father confesses his unbelief. He doesn't defend it. Don't defend your unbelief. Confess it. I've been talking about this for the last two or three weeks, like the role of faith and the the poison of unbelief. Listen, we all have times where we're struggling to believe. Don't defend it. Well, I'm having a hard time believing because of this or because of that. Confess it. Like the father understood that unbelief is an issue and unbelief is actually preventing him from getting what he needs. So he confesses, I, I believe a little bit, but help the part of me that doesn't believe. I need bolstered. This is also, and Paul talks about this in Romans, faith is actually a gift from God. Faith is not something you hype up. Okay, okay, believe. Three, two, one, Like, This is not going into super Saiyan Christianity here. No one gets that. Uh, This is something that God gives. Faith is a gift that we receive from God. So when you need your faith to be bolstered or increased, don't try to hype yourself up. You actually ask God, I need you to help. Lord, that faith that you give, would you give that to me now? Because I I cannot work this up uh, no matter what I try to do. So don't defend your unbelief confess your unbelief don't excuse it don't protect it confess it confront it so then uh, the boy goes into one of his manifestations and one of his fits and actually a crowd starts to gather and Jesus I think wanting to protect the dignity of this boy It says in verse 25, Jesus saw a crowd that was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. So Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. This rebuke has two parts. First, he identifies the spirit by the symptoms, he doesn't give it some weird name. He says, You deaf and mute spirit. That's how he addresses it. You deaf and mute spirit. And then he says, come out of him. He commands the demon to do. He doesn't bargain, negotiate, or ask. He commands the demon what to do. So this rebuke is very simple. Two parts. Who are you talking to? You identify it based on the manifestations or the symptoms, and then you tell it to go. Now, it's possible that the disciples tried this and it didn't work. This is often how Jesus deals with it. You have to identify who you're talking to and tell them what to do. Now we don't have to get really like hyper religious about this and start to talk to demons in the King James version only voice. You know, you're talking to your family like, "Hey, what do you guys want to do for dinner?" and then there's a demon like, "Wherefore art thou evil spirit?" I don't know why we do this. Well, actually, I do know why we do this. It's because we have so little confidence in the authority that we have in Jesus that we try to make up some authority by sounding like Shakespeare and raising our voice. And we think that we get our authority from our volume. We think we get our authority from our religious-sounding language instead of the fact that we get our authority from Jesus. So it's this fake, false authority Thou foul spirit, be gone. You husky John. You like I don't know why, this goes for prayer and every other thing, by the way. Don't pray differently than you talk. Because we know it's fake, all right? Yeah. Well, I think that if uh, the Sermon on the Mount was preached again today and Jesus said, you know, don't rattle off, Different, you know, don't use a vain repetition and all that stuff. He'd probably say like, and also don't pray in the King James if you aren't from 1611, you know, like, so anyway. But the rebuke is very simple. Identify the spirit, tell it what to do. There's no flowery language here. He doesn't go into a magical spell or incantation, which I think we want to drift toward that sometimes. Abracadabra, magic words. Uh, when we talk about Jesus doing miracles, we're going to just insert, uh, introduce this idea that Jesus rarely did the same thing twice. Whether he was healing, sometimes he made mud, spit in the mud and put it on people's eyes. Sometimes he just said a word. Sometimes he had to pray twice. There's not really a formula. There's just a principle. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And that's going to be the principle when we talk about Jesus doing miracles. So he rebukes the unclean spirit, and the disciples are like, Why couldn't we do it? Verse 28. They came into the house afterwards, everything settles down, and the disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? You know, I actually like that. I like their question because they want to know how to get better. They weren't able to do it, and instead of saying, like, huh, it's impossible they actually say, what do we do wrong? How do we get better? It's obviously possible because we've done this in the past and Jesus, you did it now. So There's something more for us to learn. I think if, sometimes when we fail in areas like healing and deliverance, if we fail, we just figure, I guess it's impossible. It's not impossible. We just didn't do it right. And the reason that the disciples became so effective and we get to the book of Acts is because they ask these questions. What did we do wrong? How come we couldn't do this? We want to know for the next time how we do this better. And Jesus answers them very, very simple. You'd think it would be a harder question. He says, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now that's a loaded phrase. First, this kind, like there's different kinds of demons, I guess, and there are, and you read the reading uh, if you read the writings of Paul and even some of the stuff in the Old Testament, you know the the spiritual realm is hierarchical uh, there are like really powerful and then medium and then lower, and they're spread out it's like an army, okay so this kind. It implies, I guess, that this—the Greek word is actually "genos." It's the one we get like genealogy or gene from. This type of demon only comes out by prayer. So there are different types, and this one only comes out by prayer. Or if you read this story in Matthew seven seventeen, verse twenty one says this: "This type only comes out by prayer and fasting." So if you read those two together, you come to that conclusion that sometimes it's prayer and fasting are necessary to get victory or breakthrough in these areas. I want to read a quote from the NASB study Bible regarding this. It says, the disciples apparently had taken for granted the power given to them or they had come to believe that it was inherent in them. Lack of prayer indicated that they had forgotten that their power over the demonic spirits was from Jesus. Now, that's a little bit of speculation, but it sounds about right. Maybe they had had so much success that they kind of thought, like, yeah, we got this. And they needed to be reminded, like, no, you actually need to be living a life of consecration. Because he said it comes up by prayer and fasting. So fasting is your self uh abstaining You're choosing for yourself to abstain from something. This is not abstaining because someone else uh, told you to do it. It's self-denial for the purpose of intimacy with God. Prayer and fasting. Fasting is self-denial. Prayer is intimacy with God. You're choosing, I'm not going to eat, but rather I'm going to dedicate myself to prayer, to time with God. This type in this story only comes out by that. Now, practical question. Okay, if I know I'm going to deal with one of these evil spirits, how much advance notice do I need to to pray and to fast? You don't know. You will never know. You will not get an email. In five days, there's going to be a powerful spirit. You're going to want to fast until then. You're not going to get a notice, a notification on your phone, a text message. No one's going to text. I mean, maybe you'll get a heads up from God through a dream or something or an impression, but you're not going to get a Gmail alert, which means we have to live lives of consecration where we are prepared at all times, where fasting is actually a regular part of our rhythm and our routine in life, where we live lives of prayer where we are always prayed up, always ready. Does that make sense? Since we're not gonna get a heads up on this all the time, we have to really always be prepared. And Jesus, if you look at Jesus's life, man, he was getting up early in the morning and spending time with the Lord. He was fasting with his disciples from time to time. He was prepared for this at any moment. The disciples evidently were not. So this kind only comes out uh, by prayer, and then in Matthew it says prayer and fasting. It calls us to a life of consecration. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about deliverance. In Acts 19, there's these seven men. Their, their dad's name is Skeva, which is a weird name. They watch the apostle Paul cast demons out of people, and they go, they go do this, and they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... And they try to cast demons out of people. And the demons say, "Uh, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, who are you? And the demonized man beats up these seven men. Strips their clothes off of them, they run out of the house naked. They've been exposed, metaphorically and literally. They're trying to do, I, I think they should have read this story. They're trying to do the works of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They're talking about Jesus, whom Paul preaches, not Jesus my Savior. Jesus that, you know, we've they're using it like a magical spell. We heard Paul say Jesus, so Jesus. That's a story of deliverance in the book of Acts. There's so many stories of deliverance in the Gospels. One of my favorite stories of deliverance actually goes back to the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1st and uh, and 2nd Chronicles, and 1 and 2 Samuel. Saul, King Saul, was tormented with an evil spirit. Do you know how he got relief? He brought David in to play on his harp. No come out in the name of Jesus, just prophetic worship. Worship gave Saul relief. The spirit that was tormenting Saul had to leave when David led worship. Worship is really helpful. So here's what we're seeing. If you try to do this without knowing Jesus yourself, you're going to get exposed and beat up. Maybe you know Jesus, but you're not prayed up and you haven't fasted. And prayer is helpful. Worship is helpful. Prayer, fasting, worship, really going to help you out when you're in a spiritual battle. I've asked Pastor John Eric if he would uh, help us tie up the loose ends here. He's going to help us respond to that uh, to this and prepare ourselves because i you know, we are in a spiritual battle. I don't mean that vaguely. Today, we are in a spiritual battle and we wanna make sure that we avail ourselves of everything Jesus has given us.
1: So I think that um, it's important for us to uh, look at chapter 17 of Matthew and see, what Jesus said was the issue in this circumstance. He says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. That is often, the mustard seed faith is often used out of context. I've used it out of context as a principle. of. If I only had a mustard seed a size of, faith the size of a mustard seed. I can do. I can do this, right? The context of that passage is casting out demonic spirits, right? And so, what is required there is faith. So, faith in Jesus, faith, um, faith, and expectation. Faith is an expectation that God is going to move on your behalf, right? Um, or move. into the space or on your behalf. And so I want to just pray this. Uh, Romans 12 says that you you ought to exercise your gifts according to the measure of faith that has been given to you, right? Uh, And so all of this is a gift from God. I agree with Pastor Jim, you don't have to muster it up. It's something that's given to you. So I want to posture ourselves, one, for the Lord to increase the faith that we we have. And I want to posture ourselves also uh, so that we can then move in that faith. Is that all right? So let me pray over you at home and you here. We want more faith and we want to move in faith. Amen? And so let's do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, we bless you and we thank you. That by your blood and by your uh, resurrection and by your exaltation and the outpouring of your spirit, O oh God, you have given to us, your people, faith. There is a measure of faith that you have given to us, Lord. And we want to walk in that, God. We want this expectation, Lord Jesus. We want this, uh, this fixed trust in you that is unmovable and that uh, moves us and propels us into action. And we want to do the things, Lord, that you do. Like healing, as we talked about last uh, week. And, and we want to cast out and evil spirits, Lord God, uh, based upon our faith in you. To walk in your authority, oh Lord. And so, do what, what, you, what you what only you can do in our lives, Lord, in the lives of the people here in this room and in the lives of the people who are watching at home. Lord, do what only you can do in us. We ask for more faith, O oh Lord. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that we would move in faith, O oh Lord. Uh, I also ask, Lord Jesus, that you would grace us with discernment. To know, O oh Lord, when something is a spiritual thing, something is a physical thing. Uh, that we would, that Google would not be our only solution, Uh, but Lord, we posture ourselves as a church to be a church that listens to you, that brings to you our requests, our questions, and also Lord, uh, we posture ourselves to be a church, to be a church that listens to your reply to our questions, God. Uh, Because you don't want your children uh, walking aimlessly and not knowing. The example that we have in this passage, Lord, is that the disciple who does not know should ask. Um, And you give. You give. You give understanding, Lord. So uh, in the name of Jesus, I declare over True Vine that we are not of little faith, but of great faith. And I declare over True Vine that we will not just sit back and be overtaken by demonic forces, but that we will uh, advance the kingdom and the reign of Jesus because Jesus is the rightful ruler of every heart and of every mind and of every place. And so I declare that over True Vine. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, One thing's for sure, I want to just extend this invitation that um, the elders of our church want to help. (laughs) We want to be uh, helpful to you as a church, and you don't have to fight this alone. You know what I mean? Um, Spiritual warfare is not to be fought alone, sometimes it's an exercise of your own authority right, uh, where, you, where the Lord is saying, hey, I've given this to you, do it. Other times the Lord is saying, hey, join, call on the body of Christ to come and, and join you in prayer over this matter, and let's get breakthrough in this way, right? So the Christian life is not about isolation, it's in community. You become more Christ-like in community, you get more victory over sins, over trauma, over tragedy in community. The Lord uses the community. That's why he gives everyone gifts to help in whatever way that, that is needed. So I want to just let you know that us as pastors, uh, we, we want to help. Us as elders, we want to help. Uh, and if you have uh, an issue or a question or wondering if there's any uh, deliverance needed, we want to help because we, we want you free. In Jesus' name, amen. And we want you walking in victory. So that's for you here and you who are at home. The invitation is there. It's part of why we're here. <laughs> uh, why we're called for this season to be ministers and shepherds of this body. Amen. Uh, one more. Well, I guess. Yeah, I, I want to pray one more thing and then we are dismissed. Lord, uh, we know that, that shame uh, drives us away from you. And we know that guilt keeps us away from you, Lord. Shame leaves us questioning our identity and guilt leaves us questioning our behavior. And so, Lord, I pray that wherever the enemy is using shame and guilt to keep us trapped, uh, wherever we're being blackmailed by the enemy, Lord, that we would expose him. So I, I declare in Jesus' name an end to blackmailing I declare an end in the name of Jesus to leveraging shame and guilt to keep us away from the fullness of God and the fullness expression of the kingdom of God in yours and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. God bless you. Uh, walk in victory, walk in authority, and walk in faith, amen? amen? Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.